From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Glenn Keane. Glenn is a legendary Disney animator. He's here with me at Learning Solutions in Orlando, where he is one of the keynote speakers, and he's speaking about creativity amidst technological change. We have a lot of tech change through the years, but how do you nurture and sustain creativity through all of that? I'm delighted to have you with me, Mr. Keane. Thanks for inviting me, Anthony. Looking forward to sharing. And a little context, you may know his dad. He has a famous dad, Bill Keene. If you're like me, you grew up with the family circus comics. Must be in the genes, right? It is. uh, I spell my name with one N. Dad spelled his name with one L, B-I-L-L. But he said, yeah, that's because uh, if I asked, you know, yes. So why with one L? He said, well, when I was a kid, my dad knocked the L out of me. So it's... (laughs) Dad was constantly joking. I mean, it was always, he wanted to be a stand-up comic. So dinner at our house was him telling jokes, but wasted on, like, you know, a six-year-old kid. Like, I don't get it. I only tell him. I don't explain him. You know, but it was a wonderful way of growing up, thinking in terms of entertainment and humor and technology. He was always the guy who had the, whatever new technology was, he was the first one on the block to get it. And I think that set a pattern for me. That's an important role model. I wanted to ask you about it, sort of look at your career a little bit and, and ask you about your creativity and how it's been nurtured over time. Now, you go back decades to a very different Disney than we know today, a different era of Disney. There's the legendary nine old men. These were the men that were working on all the classic Disney animated films that we know of. I wonder if you can just take us back to that time and what what it was like for you as a a younger animator artist coming into that period and and looking for mentors. I never uh, really wanted to be an animator. It just more happened by destiny than anything. And to find myself at Disney studios at 20 years old to learn under these master animators was i mean it's just like i couldn't believe what happened to me how how that happened and i mean i'll never forget just even walking into the studio this is the place that walt disney built this animation studio and coming in there it was like i don't know a a temple for the artist (laughs) you know this and the incense was this wonderful smell of pencil shavings, cigarettes, and scotch. Mm. (laughs) It was just like, this is an artist's place. Yes. Uh, And I started to work with these men whose goal it was to pass on to a new generation what would have been lost if they hadn't. The first person I started to work with was Eric Larson, a very wonderful gentleman who taught me that the key to Disney animation is uh, sincerity. But I didn't know what that meant. It's like, okay. I sincerely wanted to do it. And I tried as hard as I could to animate uh, to the point that I just, my pencil points kept breaking off. I mean, I was so sincere. Yes. Uh, My first animation, I just couldn't figure it out how to do it. And I went into Eric and asked him, 
for some help. And Eric, it, this was a little scene with Bernard, this little mouse and rescuers is sweeping. And, and I said, Eric, I can't, I can't figure out the sweeping action. And I thought he was going to give me some formula for how to do that. And he said, uh, well, Glenn, uh, what kind of a guy is Bernard? I said, well, I don't know. What do you mean? Well, does he care about the, the work he's doing? I said, well, yeah, I guess so. Well, of course he does. This is the kind of guy, he, he, he throws his whole heart into everything he does, don't you think? I mean, if he's sweeping the floor, he's, he's trying to sweep up every little speck of dust. And he started talking about Bernard as this little guy, and it was so sincere. And that's when I realized sincerity was believing in the character, believing yeah. in whatever it is you're creating. There's total conviction and commitment and these nine old men were like children still, saying, hey, let's play make-believe. Yes. That you could make yourself believe. And that, that's the thread that was really passed on. So he had cut through all the technical layers that you were stressing about and the tools and got you back to just believing in this character. And this, this is truly character-driven storytelling, very authentic way of getting to... Uh, what really matters? It'll be expressed through the tools, but it got you really to what mattered. It got me to connect to what uh, I related to ever since I was a little kid. I would do drawings, not to do a drawing, but to make the paper go away. I wanted to step into the page. I would draw dinosaurs because yes. I wanted to go back in time. I wanted to be yes. there with them. And, and so he was igniting that part of me that just, as a kid, who wants to play make-believe. I mean, yes. I, I really think that that's... The key to creativity is thinking like a child. Yeah, this is a lot like in the writing realm, Ray Bradbury, that very childlike approach to things. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think what you're describing is the physical format starts to disappear, it starts to become invisible as you, you achieve, I guess, an immersion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you step into it, like Mickey stepping through this magic mirror into this imaginary world. That's always been for me. When I'm animating, the world goes away. And even though you may see it fully painted and with music and everything up on the screen, but it was never as good as the moment it happened for me on my desk. That's where I'm really living in the skin of what I'm animating. Yes. So you've seen a lot of change over time. Was this experience or this core lesson that you just described that you learned, was that what allowed you to cross technical divides as digital came along? What was that like? Was that hard still because you're struggling with new tools or did you feel like you always had your footing because of what you just described? Well, maybe it's an attitude towards what technology is. Is it a strange thing or is it a wonderful new thing? You know, and our family, my dad always had whatever the newest technology was, he had it first. Mm. If it was a color TV, he had it first. Even when he was a kid, before there was you know, tape recorders, they had wax records that you could record family, and it would actually create the grooves on the wax record, which we still have. You can hear my grandfathers and you know people talking from back then, and he just always had that. So I grew up with this sense of technology is cool, but I'm also the most traditional artist. I, I love the pencil. I love to draw. But maybe more than that is this desire to live in my imagination to make that real. So 
there was a point at Disney where we had a multiplane camera. Disney still does. It's just a museum piece now, but with all the different levels of glass on it, and it was practically two-story tall structure and with a camera that would come down to a piece of glass. And like in Bambi, you'd have the forest painted on that piece of glass and you could see the other glasses all the way through and there was depth. And as the camera got to that top level, they'd pull that out. That was now out of focus and you would kept moving through and it just gave you the impression. Wow. So that's about 20 feet worth of uh, distance. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's incredible. I it never is, thought it would be that. It's huge. Yeah. You would have like about eight people in white suits, you know, all working on it. And these were the technicians operating this camera. But by the seventies, it was so expensive. They didn't use it. We, on the Fox and the Hound, we had one shot that we were able to have a multiplane camera on in 1980. And I was frustrated. I'd look at the films like Pinocchio and I think, look at all those wonderful movements in, in Fantasia, the depths and dimension that they're getting. Why can't we have that? And, uh, one day John Lasseter, who was working with me, uh, we went across the street and there was Tron was in production and we saw these light cycles moving in space and thought, why can't we do computer animation? I mean, this was animation, but it wasn't officially stepping into the character animation world. So we thought we could do a film and why not? Let's, let's come up with a little test. So we took uh, Marie Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are and we animated a just a short little 90-second piece where John and I flew out here to, out to New York and met with a company called Magi, which eventually had become Blue Sky, and worked with Chris Wedge. And we created three-dimensional backgrounds. John was really guiding that process but we couldn't do characters. So I would draw the characters moving in dimension as if it was in, well, it was now in a 3D world. And it was, man, it was the most wonderful things. Like the angels were singing. Then mm. suddenly be able to run down the staircase and see the, the architecture of the house moving around as this yes. little boy's chasing this dog. And we just were most excited. And given About the resolution the back then, I'm sure it was a, a primitive version yeah. of that, but yeah, just pretty thrill, that spatial thrill. Yeah, uh, and we painted the characters as if they looked dimensional, so it looked like it fit into the, the shadow and rendering of the world. But Disney wasn't ready for that at that point. They didn't see a purpose in it, and it seemed expensive, and everything was going fine with hand-drawn, and why are we doing that? So John ended up leaving, I ended up staying... I don't know what happened to that John Lasseter guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think he did okay. <laughs> and uh, and then just all along the, the way, though, this combination of I love to draw and I love dimension has always intersected with the computer, giving me a greater ability, like with Tarzan, to be able to, it, with deep canvas, have Tarzan to be tree surfing down the branches and in dimension and using that to the point of doing Tangled, where I was supervising the animation, drawing over the animator's CG work, trying to take all the appeal and the things that I loved in hand-drawn and putting it into that. So that path has always 
it just it's like train tracks that in the distance you just see them converging. There's now. a natural convergence. Yeah, really. and I'm living in the convergence now. Yeah, it's amazing. And so fast forward, you're not with Disney now, but you've been doing some amazing work that marries the most traditional forms of animation with the new stuff. Can you tell us about your work with Google? Yeah, well, actually, you know, sometimes you get a feeling that something's waiting for you, but you don't know what it is. Something's calling you, but yes. you don't know who or what, but you've got to respond. It's like a preparation meets opportunity, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, and I was feeling that. I'd been at Disney about 38 years, and, and my wife knew that I was feeling restless. She said, well, where are you going to go if it's not Disney? I said, I don't know. Um, Google? She said, but you don't Google what? That doesn't make any sense. You don't you don't do what Google does. I said, I know. I kind of like that. I like the fact that I don't do what or Google doesn't do what I do, and but they touch everybody in the world. There's something so wonderful and adventurous and scary and like I don't know. And I've always been drawn to that edge of fear and art are good sisters. You know that they they need to be together. So I said, but, you know, I, I think I need to leave. But, man, I kept talking about it. And I just, to have the courage to leave something when it's going really well at Disney, I, mean, I love being there, it was hard. And I, I read this quote by Goethe, which just talks about, if you are on that edge of making a choice but draw back, you never get to see all of the wonderful circumstances that will suddenly be there once you've committed but hesitancy will destroy all of those wonderful plans that could have been. Mm. And, you know, he talks about boldness has genius in it. Boldly take that step. So I did. I left. And um, immediately other opportunities were opening up, maybe to head up an animation department at a big Hollywood studio. My wife and I sold our house, and I was thinking, okay, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. We moved down to Hollywood. But somehow I knew, no, that's not right. No. And so I told them, no. My wife is, okay, so now we sold our house. Now we're down here. What are we going to do? Well, then I get a phone call, and it's Google, asking if I would come up and take a look at this new technology they were developing using the GPS technology with a phone, and that there was a way of animating in this dimensional world. They had done a little film already, Jan Pinkova was directing it, and Rashid El Garab was up in their team, and it was they had a, this group called Spotlight Stories. So I went up and met Regina Dugan, who used to be running DARPA, doing weaponry, and now she was heading up a research division for for Google. So she said, "Well, we would like you to come up with some animation for this new technology." First, I just looked at the small phone. I thought, why would I be interested in, <laughs> in giving up the big screen for that little thing? And then I realized, no, it's not. It's more like a window into, you know, infinity. Yes. Potentially the largest screen there there is. And I said, well, what do you want? She said, well, we just, we want you to create something beautiful and emotional. I said, okay. Well, what's the catch? She says, there is no catch. We want you to push yourself creatively. That will push us technologically. Okay. So we moved up there to Saratoga and started working at Google, our little team, and we animated this little film duet that you can 
now download Spotlight Stories on your iPhone or Android, and it turns your phone into a little camera, and, it, and there was no longer edges to my paper. Now yes. everything was out there in dimension. And This is a spatial construct where that wherever you move that phone, it's a little window into a world that you can track with and look around. It, it was really miraculous, and also with music. Scott Stafford created the music, wrote a song, a melody, and an orchestra for, you know, composed it, which is amazing in itself, but also the technology that allows you, no matter where you move, you can, you can go down a little side trail and be watching, and somehow his melody and the whole rhythm of it still has to work in the serendipitous choices yeah. of the viewer. It's amazing. You know, there's, there's so much technology behind it, but it's all invisible. And then the animation, the content itself, you couldn't imagine it being more earthy and traditional. It has a very hand-sketched appearance, stylistically, aesthetically to it. It's just wonderful. It's, it's an amazing blend of technology and, and just the human human movement, human drawing. Thank you. The, the, um, the hand-drawn aspect was really important. Jenny Rim was our producer and Max Keen, my son, was our production designer. And that was our little team that went up there. And Max took one of my drawings from the very beginning. He came up with the look of it. So I was roughing out some ideas, and he, he just scanned it at a super high res. And it came up on his computer screen just a tiny little fraction of an inch of the graphite line. And it was just this a star field of dust, mm. just the texture of the stroke, it, right? It was, it was wonderful. Mm. And... So then he, he reversed that, and now it was like it was light particles in space, and he floated it so it's got an atmosphere in these drawings. Then it all became about light in this in space. Oh, interesting. Did that become your process? Did you reverse the yeah. images so that you've got that? It's like you're painting with light on a black expanse. That's right. So that became a way of celebrating line. I mean, I, I, I think of line when you draw. You, it's like a seismograph of your soul. You're putting emotion it is. out there. Even a static, you know, what is ostensibly a static stroke, or I, you look at a painting that could be or you look at a Degas. decades old, but you see the movement in it. It's moving, really. Yeah. If you have, you can trace the movement. It's incredible. You trace the movement and the emotion. Yes. If you if you look at a Degas ballerina, there's something that he, you know, in the charcoal stroke that he's drawing in the pastel. There's a tenderness the way of what he's drawing, and you can feel it in the way he drew it. Yeah. Um, this sort of brings us full circle to what you said in the beginning: is the sincerity, you know, the authenticity of what went into animating. It wasn't about the methods, the tools. I think that's the biggest takeaway I'm getting so far from this conversation: is that the principles don't change. Principles in this case of recreating human movement, human gesture, the feeling, really it was the feeling that you were after. It transcends everything. And amazingly, it's transcended decades of this incredible uh, technological landscape we've crossed all these years. But really wonderful. Are there other projects you're working on now? Well, uh, yeah, I, I keep getting pulled in deeper into new technology with uh, virtual reality. How do you animate in that space? CG is a natural place to animate, but I'm always drawn to the actual handcrafted. That's something I don't want to leave behind this. It's, it's like the synthesizer or the violin. No one ever wants a world without the violin. Right. But 
the synthesizer is really important and wonderful too. And we just finished a, um, a film with Kobe Bryant called Dear Basketball, and John Williams was doing the music. And you know, it was with a full eighty-piece orchestra, and it was it was so wonderful. It's hand-drawn, more hand-drawn than anything I've ever done mm. in its texture, more like a moving illustration. But there was also they were sweetening some of the sounds of the the piano with with synthesizer just to give it a glow because what once again Max was creating these the images with the drawing and giving it an atmosphere so it feels dimensional and it, it, there's an atmosphere there's a space around it and then the sound the music always has to feel like it exists in that same environment that you're looking at and he was doing that mm. and I, I feel like there's always this blend of technology yes. and and handcraft these are shorter, but are you drawing the keyframes? You have in-betweeners, or I did. I had an in-betweener working with me. It was very difficult to find somebody that could do this kind of work. Uh, Aiden Terry is his name, and he found a, we we had a test with various various people in the country doing that, and he was from uh, NYU, John Canemaker's student, and. He just was uh, born to do this. Mm. So he's now working with us at our oh, studio. Wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate your time today, Mr. Keene. I think all these principles, you're talking about animation. We're in a learning world where we, we need creativity as well, and we struggle with tools and technology. But I, I think all those principles kind of port over to our world. So we I want to thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real delight just to run back in my past and look at it and realize, man, I, right now I feel like I'm 20 years old just starting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again. a lot. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University. 